Good morning, and welcome to the second episode of my podcast series. I'm Matt Williams, science communicator, writer for University Interesting Engineering, and a sci-fi author in my spare time. Uh, while this is the second installment in uh, my podcast series, it is uh, part of an ongoing series that began with a series of vlogs, and picking up where I left off, uh, last time I spoke about uh, the Great Filter Hypothesis. Well, today, um, as I sort of uh, touched on at the end of the last episode, the want to talk a bit about megastructures and um, large-scale engineering on the stellar or interstellar scale and the implications that this has for the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Because, as... Enrico Fermi famously asked um, in 1950, he said, where is everybody? Where are all the aliens? Why is it that when we look out at the universe, there's uh, a huge disparity between what we assume is the statistical likelihood of life, but the complete lack of evidence for it? In any case, um, that spawned that question, as I said last time, it spawned a million uh, uh, well, close to it, um, possible resolutions. So one very interesting um, idea that, uh, that this brings up here is that, um, yeah, part of uh, what was implied in that question, part of what's implied in all the resolutions of the Fermi Paradox is um, if, uh, in fact, extraterrestrial intelligence was out there in abundance and there were ancient and highly evolved um, civilizations then the signs would be impossible to ignore. So this brings up the question, what are those signs? What could we expect to see from an advanced enough civilization? And that brings us to uh, Nikolai Kardashev, who was a Soviet and Russian astrophysicist and a major uh, contributor to the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. In 1964, he wrote an essay uh, that was titled Transmission of Information by Extraterrestrial Civilizations. Now, the paper itself was all about what kind of, um, what kind of transmission technologies, what kind of energy uh, SETI researchers should be looking for. But what is, uh, what is really remembered about this paper was, uh, it, was almost a, it was almost a side note in the paper, but he proposed a possible three-type three um, scheme for classifying alien in, in civilizations, and that became known as the Kardashev scale. So there were three types of civilizations that he uh, that he sort of designated. He said that type one civilizations would be planetary, and they're the types that can use and store all the energy available on their planet. So that would include everything from you know fossil fuels and basic uh, chemical power to uh, solar and wind and nuclear and fusion and all of these available methods really that they had optimized the use of energy on their planet all that was available to them so they were making absolute use of every bit of energy the sun gave them and uh, and and uh, that uh, yeah basic chemical and uh, nuclear and subatomic processes would allow and a type 2 civilization is a it, it was uh, defined as a stellar civilization, and that applied to civilizations that could use the all the energy of their entire star, uh, their entire star system. Uh, 
So that would, uh, what that would look like, it would be uh, basically they, they have colonized every planet in, in the uh, system, or that they have even built an artificial structure to absorb every bit of energy from the sun. More on that in a bit. Um, and the third, type 3 civilizations, were galactic in scale, and they are able to control the energy of an entire galaxy. So this, from this scheme, there were a lot of very interesting thoughts on, well, what would that look like? What, how do we detect them? Carl Sagan, he wrote a page in his book, actually, uh, The Cosmic Connection, of which I have a copy right here. Uh, he wrote that um, in 1973, at the time of publication, he said that uh, humanity, uh, our present civilization, was a type point, uh, 0 0.7. And yeah, we have not yet achieved a type one uh, level classification, but what that would look like would most likely be, yes, we have a huge band of satellites in orbit that are providing 24, 7, 365 space, space, solar energy. We have uh, countless solar, um, solar arrays on planet earth. We are harnessing the power of our tides geothermal energy, wind, and fusion, so that we have uh, ascended what we're, what we're in right now, which is sort of a post-industrial scale, and we've become planetary and entirely renewable. Yeah, and that's, uh, that's, a very, that's a very good vision to have. As for a Type II civilization, one of the best uh, and most uh, coherent uh, descriptions, um, it, uh, it came from uh, Freeman Dyson, who came up with the concept of a Dyson Sphere. And yes, he wrote in his original uh, proposal paper, he wrote exactly what, um, how we could look for that sort of thing. So the, uh, what he described was, yes, this sphere would be an artificial structure. It would be built to enclose our star and much of its planets, or possibly all. Um, the yeah, the smart money is to say build it right in the circumsolar habitable zone, right, right where it can, um, where it where Earth's orbit was. Build it at that uh, at that distance, and uh, once you've enclosed the entire star, you've now created habitable living space in the entire volume. People can live anywhere on the interior surface. They've got sunlight. They can simulate night, and yeah, they've got abundant, inexhaustible energy just raining down on them. Until, of course, the sun itself uh, has reached the end of its life cycle billions of years later. Um, as Dyson indicated, though, you could actually look for these megastructures in space by looking for the heat that they would radiate, because uh, inevitably a Dyson sphere, all that energy it's absorbing, would have to radiate some of that heat outwards. So he said... Look in places where there are signs of a gravitational disturbance, but no visible light. Look in the infrared. Look just for heat, and you'll find it there. And that was, uh, he wrote that paper in 1960, so he did actually have a bit of a jump on Kardashev's paper. But, as is so often the case, these things just, you know, went together, linked up, and became part of, uh, uh, part of our uh, absolute just... <laughs> All, all, all these wonderful theories about what could be out there. Um, and so a Type 3 civilization, that is probably the hardest to, to visualize there. But 
Um, there are ideas that have been suggested over the years. It's like, well, if, if the civilization were that advanced, perhaps it could build a structure to enclose its entire galaxy. Or maybe they would opt for a smaller uh, structure that was at the heart of the galaxy, right? Because in, in the heart of every massive galaxy, you have a supermassive black hole, and it pumps out a tremendous amount of energy. So if you were to build a structure in that region there, you could, again, take advantage of all that energy. It would be massive in scale, and it would be able to accommodate uh, countless living beings. So all this, all this, yeah, a couple takeaways there is that, yeah, any, any civilization like that, any structures like that would be impossible not to notice eventually. Right? Initially, astronomers wouldn't even know what they were seeing if they were seeing it. But in time, just from a theoretical standpoint, they'd be able to say, our predictions match up with these observations, so we think it must be, a, must be an alien civilization there. Now, over the years, um, what was so very interesting about the Kardashev scale was the way you could, uh, the way people were able to sort of revise it and expand it and and look larger and that was so very interesting because of course it's like well yeah Kardashev's scheme was pretty general and, and you, you notice that the scale of it it leaps exponentially planet star system galaxy it's like there's a lot of room in between there and there's also a lot of potential structures that one could imagine too Rather than just a shell, which is extremely huge, and and engineers have actually looked at the, the material requirements, and they and it's like while something like that, yeah, is theoretically possible, the physics of it would work if you have the right technology and capability, but the amount of material it's insane, right? You're not just using up your planets in a solar system to create a uh, to create a Dyson sphere, you, you need other planets and, and so many of them and so many asteroids. So there are other ideas. One very um, uh, one that that came shortly thereafter was a, uh, a a Niven ring. Science fiction author Larry Niven, and he wrote a series on this called Ring World, and um, and it, that was followed by others who who also proposed variations on that and on the Dyson sphere. So there's this whole family of things known as Dyson structures. So the ring itself is a single ring that, that uh, reaches around the star. It's within its circumsolar habitable zone, but it's confined to one ring that is, uh, would be several kilometers in diameter, and it creates this huge band that reaches uh, all around the sun there, just out from uh, the equatorial region or the, or from pole to pole. Yeah, and the circumference of it measures uh, oh, uh, hundreds of thousands of kilometers. Yeah, and because of the, uh, if it's also rotating, it imparts artificial gravity, which means that any atmosphere in there is held in place, and even just the the thickness of the ring itself would probably be enough to generate uh, enough gravity to keep things anchored. So, yeah, everything's sort of safe and steady there. Um, and there were also, going beyond that, there are, are other concepts that are just absolutely out there, blow your mind. Uh, the Matryoshka brain, or, uh, yeah, that is one that uh, it has several... Um, 
several thinkers who've contributed to it. The the one I'm most familiar with is uh, from Charles Strauss. He was a science fiction writer, and the idea is you take um, you disassemble the planets, you turn them into not in, not a solid structure, but just a huge, huge, dense field of dust. And every grain of that dust is converted into a tiny supercomputer, or rather just a tiny computer, um, where, um, yes, and, and uh, the they interact with all the other particles around it, forming a giant supercomputer. And it absorbs the heat from the sun, and it transfers out it out from inner layers to outer layers. And each one of these layers is basically a massive computer running all kinds of simulations and maybe virtual realities. And the, uh, the civilization itself, it's like if they've long since transcended, they have put their brains into this massive uh, computer construct, and that's where they live. And um, yeah, Ray Bradbury had a similar idea called a Jupiter brain, but it was basically on the size of a Jupiter-sized gas giant planet. But yeah, Matryoshka brain is the, is the truly scaled-up version. And it's even been suggested that this is why we're not hearing from advanced alien civilizations. They're living, they're living out this uh, eternal existence around their stars, where the energy is abundant and the bandwidth is good. And uh, yeah, they're living this their simulated existence. Why would they venture beyond? It's like you get far enough away from the star, the bandwidth sucks. So yeah, stay close. And uh, yet another idea. Oh, and this one I absolutely love. It's just <laughs> really, truly out there. It's called a Shkadov thruster, or a stellar engine. And the idea is similar to uh, a Dyson sphere, except you build a roughly a, a half sphere around the star. It's uh, highly reflective material on the inside, and you have um, and and this device focuses the sun's uh, solar energy out uh, one out of uh, the open side right and that that creates thrust because yeah the the solar radiation reflecting against this giant sphere it pushes that the or half sphere it pushes it away that half sphere draws the sun with it by force of gravity and the solar wind there which is being focused out the back is pushing the whole thing onward and so, with this device, you'd be able to move a star. And for a civilization, it's like if they were so inclined, they could uh, live within this uh, sphere um, and uh, basically just travel onwards from star system to star system or galaxy to galaxy throughout the, their lives, throughout many, many, many generations over the course of uh, thousands of years and eons. Yeah, and they would be, yeah, they'd be on the move the whole time, and they would be taking everything they needed with them. It is the single largest spaceship concept ever invented. It's like if there were a way to move, if there were a way to move galaxies, and it's possible a super advanced civilization would know how to do that. That would be the one thing greater than this. But this would be certainly from our perspective, right, where we are as humans, it would be the ultimate act of engineering and, and transport, and it's something a level two civilization could do. And um, other than that, you have um, 
many different uh, variations there. Some that are smaller in scale. It's like these are still huge structures, but and massive space stations in space. Um, but they're not quite as, as big as that. But they would still be very useful from a, um, a SETI standpoint because they would be hard not to notice. And a very popular one is the O'Neill Cylinder. And to, um, to give you an idea what that looks like, well, it's pretty simple. Um, O'Neill described this in uh, his book in 1976 called The High Frontier, Human Colonies in Space. And he said, if you have a cylinder that um, measures uh, 32 kilometers long, or 10 miles, and 8 kilometers in, or 5 miles in diameter, and then you started rotating it, you imparted rotation. You just have to give it a kick, and inertia would take care of the rest. It would just keep rotating. You speed it up to just about the right speed, and it would simulate artificial gravity inside. And then you can build all of these uh, biomes inside, right? You bring in uh, grass, plants, uh, trees, you bring in all kinds of terrestrial organisms, and you create all these different, um, uh, different types of biomes like we have on Earth, right? You have your arid regions, your semi-arid regions, your lush tropical regions, your deserts, your Arctic tundra. You have all these sort of spaced out so that they can like feed off of each other and and help maintain each other you do that just right and you have got a endlessly you've got a closed loop system that is bioregenerative it's endlessly sustainable um, as long as you take care of it right you know you allow uh, sunshine to enter through like, huge windows or, or what have you and and yeah you've got there just abundant energy and space to, to move and roam and live and these cylinders, you could place them all over the solar system, wherever there's stable gravity, like the, uh, the, the Lagrange points there. And each one of them could house, uh, well, at that size, a few million people, easy. And, um, in fact, this is, uh, this is something Jeff Bezos has been flirting with. He wants to do this big time. Elon Musk is focused on going interplanetary and allowing humans to live on Mars and, and other planets in the solar system. Whereas Bezos, um, whether by design or by default, he wants to do space structures, big, huge space stations, uh, and allowing for millions of people to live like that. So, in applying each and every one of these um, structures there, right? once again going with the idea that, well, if we can think of it, then somebody else already has, and somebody else probably already did it. It's like, yeah, all of these give us... Um, like um, constraints or um, prerequisites, you know, certain things that we can itemize and say, yeah, so that structure would look like this and that this structure would look like that and they would uh, give off the following signs and so forth. And the funny thing is, um, fans of astronomy and, uh, and astrophysics, they'll, they'll probably recognize this name right off the bat there. But um, in 2015, astronomers began to flirt with the idea that maybe we were seeing uh, an example of a megastructure. And it was around a star uh, known as uh, KIC 8462552, or Tabby's star. And that was named after Tabitha Boyajian. Boyajian. Um, and um, 
in any case, uh, what they found was that this star was dimming periodically, right? It was Its light was increasing and dimming. And this is often uh, used as a means of detecting exoplanets around a star or large asteroids, debris disks, or whatever. The thing is, when it's a natural object, there are, there are indications. It's pretty clear that what you're seeing is a natural phenomenon. Well, in the case of this one, um, it, it defied conventional explanations. So, again, nobody said, oh yeah, it's an alien megastructure. Nobody in the scientific community said that. But uh, they did say, well, it is a possibility. We can't rule it out yet, and we're going to try. That's our job as scientists. We're going to try and find the most likely natural explanation to fit. And multiple studies were um, were conducted, and that included one in 2018 by uh, uh, Professor Boyajian herself, and that appeared to settle the matter. They thought, uh, yes, it, it, it could be a combination of things uh, that, that caused this. But... Um, yeah, I, I'm not actually certain that that really did settle the argument. It gave a satisfactory explanation, but it's like, well, there's still room for interpretation. And more than that, Tabitha's star was not the only one to do that, or Tabby's star. It's, it's not the only star that has been shown to be uh, dimming in a way that is not so periodic, not natural in appearance, and therefore... Uh, there, there, there is still the possibility, not yet ruled out, that what we are seeing is uh, signs of civilizations. And um, yeah, until until we rule it out, it's always it's fun to keep that just on the back burner. And that's something I always hope we'll uh, <laughs> we'll be able to do. Right? It's like we don't we can't say it's aliens. There's no proof that it is. It's just that we can't rule that possibility out. And I and I hope we don't. So in the near future, we're going to get a chance to do a lot more um, up-close, detailed, and direct imaging studies, thanks to James Webb, thanks to Nancy Grace Roman, thanks to the extremely large telescope, the giant Magellan telescope, the 30-meter telescope. There's just uh, all these possibilities, all this potential for that with these superior instruments that, are, that, are, um, that will become operational in this decade. And James Webb has already, uh, it's already been taking some sample pictures, so it won't be long there. Um, and uh, and yes, this this does raise uh, a whole another rich field, which I'm definitely going to jump on, uh, on on one in one of the next podcasts I make here, which is it one of the reasons why the whole. Fermi's paradox and the Hart-Tipler conjecture, you know, there are no aliens because we're not hearing from them. One of the ways in which that is, um, there is a big hole in that argument is, for all we know, we could, we may be in possession of so much evidence that there is extraterrestrial intelligence out there, advanced, uh, possibly extinct, possibly still alive, we could have a ton of it, but we just don't know that. We just don't know it. We don't recognize it as such. So, yes, it, it, it once again shows how limited we are in our assessment of, uh, of what is out there and how limited our methods currently are. We are limited to not only our instruments, but what we can imagine. And what we can imagine is limited by, the, by our perspective. We, just, we don't know what could be out there, so therefore we're confined to guessing. 
And, you know, but we have made some wonderful guesses over time, and the Kardashev scale is absolutely one of them. It stands among all these very, uh, uh, very timeless, very honored concepts. And uh, another thing that this brings me to, and it's what I would definitely want to cover next day, is there is an extension of the um, Kardashev scale that says instead of thinking bigger, let's start thinking smaller and more optimized. Advanced aliens are not going to just get bigger and, and blitz, glitzier and, and harder to ignore. If anything, they're likely to get uh, smaller scale, more sophisticated, and more optimal, uh, more optimized in terms of their use of space and, and the energy they can harness. And it's something I spoke about uh, not long ago in a podcast with The Way, and it's known as the Transcension Hypothesis. So, but that, I'm going to save that for next time because it really is so very fascinating, and it also touches on, you know, how do you know uh, what's out there if you don't even know what to look for, right? And if you're not looking for the right thing, you're, you will miss what is there. So that, yes, I'll save that for next day. And today, I'll just say that, yeah, when it comes right down to it, the most important tool we have when it comes to looking for life in the universe other than our own is our imagination. And that that paradox, right? We don't know what to look for until we find it. And we won't find it until we uh, know what to look for <laughs> and look for it. Yeah, it's like your imagination is the best weapon in this. And it really does, the more you go down that sort of rabbit hole of, well, what's possible if you're advanced enough? Oh, just about anything. So that, that could be out there. And that's, <laughs> yeah, that's the kind of stuff that keeps me up at night. <laughs> but uh, in a very good way. So until next time, thank you for listening. And uh, I hope this too has proved to be somewhat illuminating and hopefully very, very comprehensible. Thank you. <laughs>